Section 30 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton, Section 30. The Return of Religious War, by G. K. Chesterton. A critic has recently complained of my article called Stonehenge and a Modern Myth, on two counts, that I was too critical of the Mayflower Puritans, and that I was too complimentary to the morals of Mr. Wells' latest novel. I think it is right to refer in passing to both those charges, though they are of very different degrees of severity. I will be patient under the charge of persecuting and slandering the saints of the reign of righteousness, but I cannot sit silent under the charge of admiring the philosophy of modern novels and the insinuation that I am in sympathy with serious psychological fiction is more than I can bear. But, precisely because the second charge must be the more urgently denied, it can be the more easily dismissed. About Mr. Wells' latest heroine, I meant merely what I said, that I felt her and her prehistoric enthusiasms to be attractively described, for her practical morality, to use a form once adopted by Mr. Wells himself, I say poo, and for her theoretical morality, I say bah. It is an understatement to say I disagree with it. I have no particular proof that Mr. Wells agrees with it. it. Is not a charge to be brought lightly against any man. But I do think the lady shows up brightly beside her elderly lover. Perhaps anybody would. As I explained, I can always enjoy the intellectual analyses in Mr. Wells' work. But, if, which I doubt, he offers the conduct described as a constructive morality really to be built up, I should always be delighted to help in knocking it down. I do not know for certain whether Mr. Wells writes in order to make all this free love philosophy repulsive. I do know that he does make it repulsive, but that cannot prevent his making one of its individual victims attractive. On the milder charge about the Mayflower and the Puritans, I am less sensitive but equally firm. My critic tells me to read more about the Mayflower, and that is just the trouble. There are two kinds of reading about the Mayflower, and I have some experience of both. I have read stacks and piles of Victorian history books, of textbooks from Cambridge or Harvard, of leading articles, political speeches, and professorial lectures about Puritanism and New England and the voyage of the Mayflower. I have also read just a little of what was said for and against such Puritanism in the Puritan period, in the contemporary records. By scholarly standards, it was very little. But little as it was, it was enough to knock all the modern stuff to limbo. I defy anybody to read 17th century literature with a free mind, and not come to the conclusion that Puritanism was, as I said, a savage theological frenzy, or, if we want more sympathetic synonyms, an elemental theological fury. But it was largely a fury against civilization, and quite certainly against toleration. 
Puritans were indeed intolerant in very varying degrees, touching the degrees and details of Puritanism. They differed very much among themselves, touching toleration among themselves. Yet one extreme was the Scottish type of fastidious fanaticism, splitting sects by splitting hairs. Yet the other was the English type of Cromwellian common sense, content the Puritan atmosphere, and anxious to secure able men from all groups of Puritans, or even of Protestants. But taking the seventeenth century as it was, for all civilization, the final war between the Catholic and Protestant elements in Christendom, there is only one fair test that we can take, and only one possible issue of the test. It is that, while Catholics and Protestants persecuted each other, there were some Catholics in favor of tolerating Protestants, and there were next to no Protestants, and certainly no Puritans, in favor of tolerating Catholics. The Puritans were simply a group of Protestants who thought that Protestantism did not persecute Catholics enough. The real exceptions among Protestants were William Penn and his Quakers, but New England Puritanism had no more community with Quakers than with Buddhists. Penn and his group were on the side of the Stuarts and the Catholic scheme of toleration. For the rest, it is quite possible to admire the Puritans as one admires the dervishes from the desert, as a wind of wild defiance, as a will that can fast and fight and perish in the wilderness for a vision. In short, it is quite possible to admire it as a savage theological frenzy. It is not possible to admire it as the foundation of modern religious liberty. In short, it is not possible to admire it as it is now admired. But I have here a rather larger interest in the matter. Religious passions were very real when rooted in the 17th century, nor are they dead in the 20th century. And curiously enough, both the two political parties have a 20th century illusion about a 17th century passion. The legend of the liberals bears the name of New England. The legend of the conservatives bears the name of Ulster. Both are concerned to whitewash what has really been a black and bitter Calvinism with a much more modern sentimentalism. Both idealized as a fight for liberty, or was simply a fight for ascendancy. The honest provincial of the Primrose League sincerely supposed that there was in the north of Ireland a sort of chivalry of beleaguered loyalists, asking only to hold their fort for England and St. George. But that Primrose path of the Primrose League really led back to the everlasting bonfire prepared by black Protestants for the Pope. The sincere nonconformist, who reads the newspapers and believes that he reads the Bible, has convinced himself that Cromwell and his Ironsides were devoted Democrats who asked only that all creeds might be equal before the law. But if the new nonconformist were put back to live among the old nonconformists, he would find them much more interested in demonology than in democracy. And I think that this truth involves larger and more important truths just now precisely because these purely spiritual forces are not even things of the past, but rather of the future. We shall see furious demonology, as well as furious theology, and see it in the twentieth, as well as in the seventeenth century. Here's an example of what I mean. Sir Henry Wilson was a religious leader in Ireland, a leader of religious war in the northern counties, exactly as the Duke of Alba was a leader of religious war in the Netherlands. 
Sir Henry was a perfectly sincere and convinced man, and so was Alva. He was a brave, brilliant, and capable soldier, and so was Alva. But he was at the head of an orange system, of which the main point was the persecution of Catholics, just as the main point of the Spanish system was the persecution of Calvinists. Now the historical difference is that the modern public is never allowed to see the point. The newspapers artificially limit us to things which even when they are the truth are not the point. Suppose Alpha had been assassinated, as he easily might have been. The Spanish people would have felt much as we do, but there would have been a difference. And it is the whole difference between the enlightenment of a people without newspapers and the ignorance of a people with newspapers. The Spanish people would have lamented a great national chief and warrior, as we do. They would have denounced assassination as an atrocious crime, as it is. But I doubt whether there would have been a single Spaniard alive who heard the news down to the rudest peasant in the Pyrenees, who would not know perfectly well that Alva had fallen fighting or persecuting for the Catholic religion. Thousands who read the modern newspapers in the big cities have not so much as a notion that the Wilson affair was connected with the Catholic religion at all. They would say, quite sincerely, that a simple soldier suffered wholly and solely for his devotion to the Union Jack. No Spanish peasant would have said that Alva suffered solely for his devotion to the heraldic lion on the Spanish station, or for the blazoned castles of Castile. Now most of these modern people believe that religious war is a thing of the past. In the early summer of 1914, Many of them believed that all war was a thing of the past. Their philosophy of history is a vague assumption that humanity has passed out of these ancient shadows forever, and that things like slavery and persecution and torture, and even revolution and all kinds of fighting, become in their turn intolerable and are forgotten. Those who think as I do have often insisted that this is very far from being true in the case of slavery. A closer study of the things which modern systems keep secret will make us more and more doubtful whether it is even true in the case of torture. But anyhow, we know now that it is not true in the case of war. And the more we know, the less we shall be deceived into thinking it is true of religious war. But though it has never been true, there was a time when it seemed very much truer than it does now. Throughout the 18th century, and even in the first half of the 19th century, the English aristocracy had the world with them in treating religious controversy as a thing that could be despised. It was, in Matthew Arnold's phrase, the way the world was going then. It is not in the least the way the world is going now. Nobody now understands the ways of the world who imagine that they are merely worldly. The once impervious minds of the Puritan and the rationalist are now permeated with every sort of mysticism, good and bad, eastern and western. Science itself has become mystical to the point of madness. Materialism itself is dissolving in mysteries. The supernatural has come again to the surface, like some vast leviathan that dives so deep that its very memory is dismissed as the dream of a distinct monster, which once in a thousand years rises terribly to breathe the airs of heaven. Once the ordinary English officer and gentleman could walk with the same innocent superiority in India or in Ireland, but that was because he had a subconscious, if not a conscious, religion. The historical Protestantism 
which was the insular religion of a chosen race. He cannot walk in that way in India if he is himself a theosophist. He cannot walk in that way in Ireland if he is himself a Catholic, not even if he is an Anglo-Catholic. He must feel at least that there is a sort of superior right in the inferior race. He must feel, in the former case, that there may be a philosopher among the slaves, in the latter case, that there may be a saint among the rebels. Even if he professes to be a materialist, he will be affected by the more modern fashions of the mysticism of materialism. With all society seething with hypnotism and faith healing, he cannot treat quite so scornfully abroad what he is obliged to treat tolerantly at home. If the Indians tell him about the mango plant, he cannot be quite so certain that it is at all a plant. If the Irish tell him about a holy well, he will find it harder to deny that there may be truth lying at the bottom of a well. End of section 30 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida